music. And, uh, it's a real blessing. 1 Samuel 16. Back in the late fall, early winter, back I think in November, maybe October, I started a little series, character studies on the life of King Saul. And then got interrupted with Christmas and speakers and New Year's and Jubilee and travels and what have you. And so it has literally been several months since we have been in the life of Saul. <clears throat> and because it had been so long, I, I thought, well, I'll just, maybe it's just the Lord saying, not now. And, and I thought that we would just not pick it back up. But tonight I want to come back to the life of Saul, though it has been several months. It's a passage of scripture that I looked at really several months ago, and it's just been sitting there, and, and I want to deal with it. I think there are some things here that can help us very practically, and then if the Lord allows, then next Sunday we'll come to chapter 17, David and Goliath, and there are three giants in that chapter, and we may deal with that. And so uh, if I, I know it's not very... Um, there's no continuity to it with all the interruptions and guest speakers that we have. Uh, but with a character study like this, I think that is okay. It's not always building upon the previous passage like in the Gospel of John, if that makes sense to you. So 1 Samuel 16 and verse number 14. 1 Samuel 16 and verse 14. The last time, several months, that we were in this, the life of Saul, we were in chapter 15 of Saul's monumental collapse uh, where he has disobeyed God and God has taken the kingdom away from him. So 1 Samuel 16 and verse number 14, uh, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servant said unto him, behold now, an evil spirit from God troubleth thee. Let our Lord now command thy servants, which are before thee, to seek out a man who is a cunning player on an harp. And it should come to pass when the evil spirit from God is upon thee, that he shall play with his hand, and thou shalt be well. And Saul said unto his servants, Provide me now a man that can play well and bring him to me. Then answered one of the servants and said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, that is cunning in playing, a mighty valiant man, and a man of war, and prudent in matters, and a comely person, and the Lord is with him. Wherefore Saul sent messengers unto Jesse and said, Send me David thy son, which is with the sheep. And Jesse took an ass laden with bread, and a bottle of wine, and a kid, that would be a baby goat, and sent them by David his son unto Saul. David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David, I pray thee, stand before me, for he hath found favor in my sight. And it came to pass, when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took an harp and played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. When we last saw Saul, he has lost his kingdom by his disobedience. He has been rejected by God as king. In fact, the statement that makes it clear in chapter 15, it says that he repented the Lord that he had made Saul king. 
And after you read that, then you would expect that in the next chapter you would see somehow Saul is deposed as the king and a new king is immediately installed, but that is not what happens. What happens is for many years it is business as usual. As Saul continues in his role as king, albeit illegitimately in the eyes of God. And in the days following, immediately following Saul's monumental collapse, God commissioned Saul, or, or Samuel, I'm sorry, to once again anoint a king. Samuel was the kingmaker. He was the one who had anointed Saul. And now he is to anoint Saul's replacement. And the Lord had set his purpose on a teenage boy in Bethlehem. We know him as David. He will not only become Israel's next king, but he will be Israel's greatest king. And so the first 13 verses of chapter 16 deals with David's anointing as king of Israel. That doesn't really pertain to the life of Saul. And so since it is not pertinent to the life of Saul, we skip over that portion, though there is much great preaching to be done in those verses. But the story is picked up in verse number 14 where it says that the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord troubleth him, troubled him. And it is a statement of judgment is what it is. Instead of killing Saul, God has left him to live the rest of his life without his influence. In subsequent passages, you will see Saul descend into this sort of mental insanity. His life has this downward spiral to it. And I cannot imagine living a life without having the voice of God in your life at all. But that's what happens to Saul. But the statement <coughs> raises some theological questions. The first is, the Bible says, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And so some read that and wonder, was Saul saved or was Saul a lost man? If Saul was lost, then how could the spirit of God be upon him? If he was saved, then how could the spirit of God depart from him? And personally, we can disagree on this, I don't believe that Saul was a saved man. But I do understand that the Spirit of the Lord came upon men in the Old Testament to enable them or empower them to do His work. It has nothing to do with the New Testament indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but it's simply His empowering of men. And the Spirit of God had come upon Saul when he was anointed, the Lord enabled him. He gave him wisdom, directed him to be the king that he was anointed to be. But now the Lord has departed from him. What a sad statement that is. I think one of the saddest statements in all of the Bible, I'm working on a sermon on this passage, is found in the life of Samson. And though Samson was a Nazarite and had a special calling on his life, he was a carnal, worldly-minded man. He was certainly not a spirit-filled man. And three times in his story you read that the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, empowering him to defeat the Philistines. But then he laid his head on Delilah's lap. He gave away the secret to his strength. And when the Philistines came in, the Bible says that he wist not that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from him. He went out to do the same work that he'd always done, but this time he has to do it without the power of and the enabling of the Holy Spirit. Right. And I think that so much of our service and so much of our ministry is done in the operations of the flesh and the strength of the arm, not knowing that the Lord has departed. 
We need the power of the Spirit of God on our lives. But too many times we go out and we live our lives whether He is with us or whether He is not. We pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, breathe on this service. But if you don't, we're going to go ahead and have church anyway. We would just like to invite you to help us along. And so the Spirit of the Lord has departed from Saul, meaning that he will operate without any direction, no influence from the Holy Spirit. But then there is a second statement in verse 14 that says that an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. So does this mean that Saul has become demon-possessed? Was this a demon that was sent by God to torment Saul? Or was it an evil spirit as in a spirit of depression that has overcome Saul's mind? And the statement has troubled Bible students for many years and there have been many attempts in trying to help the text. That's what you do when you come to the Bible. You, you try to help the text is what you try to do. And some say it was an evil spirit as in a demonic force. Others say it was a psychological or physiological matter such as depression or uh, one commentator said hypochondria, uh, some kind of bipolar disease, something like that. And, and so that there are different opinions uh, as, as to what, what, what it is. And, and I read it exactly as it reads. That God brought judgment upon Saul's life by directing an evil spirit to come upon Saul and inflict him with mental and emotional and psychological torment. I, I see no reason to read it any other way. I know that God can order evil spirits, demons as he wants, and he uses this one, I think, to punish a man, and he has no problem doing that. So I don't think it's medical. I don't think it is psychological. I believe it is a spiritual judgment that results in mental and emotional distress. So this is the place where we find King Saul in this next scene. And in this setting, in this context, there are some very practical lessons that we can draw from this that I want to give you tonight. And the first is, I believe that in this passage there is something that we can learn about the mind. Something to learn about the mind. Saul is tormented in his mind because of an unrepentant heart. Because he has lost the kingdom. He has become depressed. He has become moody. He has become susceptible to outbursts of anger. And again, it is a spiritual problem brought on by an evil spirit that manifests itself in depression and, and violent outbursts and an unbearable spirit. The man cannot sleep. He becomes paranoid. He thinks everybody is out to get, to get him. He has no peace of mind. And it tells us something about the absence of God in a man's life. He would lie on his bed and he would fret about the denunciation of Samuel. He would worry about the, the kingdom being rent from him, being taken away from him. He is too proud to repent. So he becomes gloomy, he becomes paranoid, he becomes angry. And I would say that when a man rejects God, when a man rejects God, his mind becomes filled with delusions and, and discouragements and deception. And there is a darkness that settles over the mind of man. That is why it is no wonder that our nation is filled with mental diseases. There are so many that we cannot even count. And millions of otherwise sound bodies 
cannot operate without a pill or bottle or some drug to help them to cope. We have people living with anxiety attacks and fear and mental disorders and clinical depression. And by the way, I want to say these things are real. I believe that mental disease is as real as a physical disease. And I want you to understand, you will never hear me say, you'll never hear me say anything to discourage you from seeing a doctor or, or taking a prescription, whatever you are prescribed, or getting professional help. I know that there is a stigma on mental health, and it should not be because a broken mind is just as real as a broken body. But I also believe that many mental problems, whether it's depression or anxiety or fear, I believe that that can be brought upon by spiritual problems. Man is a spiritual being, and when the spiritual is neglected, it, the emotional and the physical is going to suffer. I knew a man that was in this church years ago, suffered from dark, dark depression, would go for days, days, without speaking to anyone, even his wife. I personally believe, I, I had many conversations with him, I believe that he had a chemical imbalance in his brain. He would not accept that it was a medical problem at all and would never go see a doctor. I am not a medical doctor, please understand. But the violent mood swings, the behavior convinced me that there was something physical going on. And if there was something broken in the brain, then that person needs professional help. But I wonder, I wonder if much depression and anxiety couldn't be healed with Scripture, with prayer, with a Spirit-filled life. I wonder if anxiety couldn't be cured with Scripture memory, with listening to godly music, with, with trusting the Lord. And, and, and if it's a medical condition, you're not going to preach it away. But if it's a spiritual problem, you're not going to medicate it. Boy, that was good right there. You should if it is a if, if it is a mental or a physical condition, you're not going to preach it away. But if it is a spiritual problem, you are not going to medicate it away either. The world's answer to mental health is 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 psychiatry. That's their answer. And a, gener a generation ago, psychiatrists would treat every symptom of mental disease with speech therapy. Here's what that meant. Come see the psychiatrist, sit on the couch, and let's talk about it. Whatever the malady is, we're going to treat it with speech therapy. They would ask you questions and they would diagnose that and, and come up with some mental disorder. And you basically have to keep coming back and talk about it and for more counseling. However, over time, the world of psychiatry began to believe that, that, that there's a physiological cause for some of this. That, that it's not just in the brain, but, but maybe it is physical. Maybe it's not just how you feel, but maybe there is something physical going on. There is something physical that causes you to be angry. There is something physical that causes that child to have ADHD or be hyperactive or whatever it might be. And so the treatment moves away from speech therapy to medication. Find a drug for it. And the drugs became as dangerous and problematic as the symptoms that they were supposed to treat. And what has happened in this generation that many people, even Christians, 
are taking medications, mind and mood altering drugs for things that the Bible addresses. And some Christians, they really want a mind that, that, that glorifies God. But you can't have a mind that glorifies God when you feed the mind things that glorify sin. You can't play video games that promote gore and, and gratuitous murders and, and watch television shows that highlight sodomites and fornicators and rape, rape and, and murder. And when you start having mental and emotional problems and then you want a doctor to help you with that. If you are battling fear, I feel like preaching, if you're battling fear or anxiety or depression, you might want to turn off CNN and Fox News and everything else. And, 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 and I, I, I don't believe that, that the help that you need resides in anything that this world has to offer. The help that you need resides in God. The Bible says that he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And the Bible says that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. He's given us the power tonight to have a sound mind. And, and, and it means that when you got saved, that God took away your old mind and he gave you a brand new mind. A mind that can comprehend the truth of the word of God. A mind that delights in God's will. And a mind that is renewed by the spirit of God. And it doesn't mean that you'll never have bad thoughts again. It doesn't mean that you'll never have a battle with your mind again. But it means that you can take those thoughts and take them captive by the power of Christ and make them subject to the law of Christ. Amen. There's something you can learn about the mind. The mind. But, but in this scene that we find Saul, there is something you can learn about ministry. Because Saul's servants recognized that the king needs help, and they found that music was soothing to him. Music is going to help. And so somebody knows somebody who knows somebody who knows David, knows he's skillful at playing a harp, and what we need is we need to get David, a, a musician, to come in and to play some soothing harp music when these, when these fits come upon Saul, when these outbursts come upon Saul, then let's bring David in and let him be here and he can play music and it will help soothe Saul's mind. And that is how David becomes connected with the family of Saul. He goes from musician to becoming an assistant to Saul and then he's almost in the family and, and he would be there when Saul would have these bouts. Then Saul, David is there to play his music. Now bear in mind, Saul doesn't know the future of David. Saul has no idea that this boy has been anointed to be the next king. And David has no desire to replace Saul. But there is just something ironic about David ministering to Saul when he has already been anointed to replace Saul. And, and here's the lesson I want us to learn is that David is destined to be great. But first he had to learn how to be small. David would be a great leader. But first he has to learn how to be a great servant. Right, right. These are not wasted years of his life. These are years yes. of preparation. Yes. 
It is in the quiet fields of Bethlehem. It is in the service of King, King Saul that David's character is being molded into what he would need to be as king himself. So while I'm looking at Saul and looking at what's happening to him in the background, I see God using that to train one of his servants to be the leader that he's called him to be. David could very easily thought the prophet named me as the next king, so when is it going to be my turn? Why should I serve Saul? Because I have been anointed. And there's just an irony seeing David serve Saul when David has been chosen to replace Saul. But it's part of God's schooling for David. He is going to learn how to conduct himself in this palace, and it's going to serve him well for years to come. And I think young men especially are filled with ideas of, of grandeur and grand vision of what they will make of their life, and that is good. But a great life is molded in the furnace of small things, learning to do menial tasks well, learning how to handle adversities, building a life of character and integrity, learning to study, Learning to be quiet, learning to serve others, learning how to treat others with respect. It may be a dead-end job that God has placed you because he's put you there because there are lessons that you can only learn in that dead-end job. And David ministers to Saul, not realizing that God is teaching him the humility he will desperately need to be the next king of Israel. And I think that all of us tonight have a desire to do a work for God, but all of us have to recognize that there is so much training and there is so much preparation and there is so much molding for any work of God. And just because David was anointed didn't mean he was ready to be king. I was called to be pastor of this church at age 24. I will tell you there was a lot of work that needed to be done into me to make me ready for the task. I was not prepared for the task just because I had been called didn't mean that I knew everything. And many young men have gone off headlong into a ministry without giving consideration to the preparation needed for that ministry. So are you willing to do menial things before God gives you bigger things? Are you willing for God to change you and take some things out of your life before he uses you? Don't despise the days of preparation, the days of learning, and the days of refining that makes you a vessel that is fit for the master's use. So there's something to learn about ministry. But in the passage, there's obviously something to learn about music. And most of the preaching done in this passage is on the power of music over the mind because it is there. And the servants of Saul found that the only thing that would calm him was instrumental music, playing the harp. There was a soothing effect on his soul when David would strum that harp. And we could go off tonight and we could preach all night on music. But I want to just say one thing to you tonight. One thing. Music is a very powerful force. And it is an addiction to a lot of people. Now, there's good music, there's bad music. We're not preaching on that tonight. But nobody, nobody would dispute that all music is all moral. Rock and roll music, pop music, you would agree with me, I'm sure, that this is music that does not glorify God. There are music standards. 
there is conservative music. We're conservative in our music. There are people in this church that are even more conservative than we are in our music. Everybody has their own standard. But I want to talk to one person tonight. One person, and I don't know who that person is. But I want to talk to one person. Someone in here is trying to live for God and set a straight course for your family, but you are drawn to the music of this world. That's your Achilles heel. That's the addiction that you can't overcome. And the music influences you. Now we can have a debate whether CCM is right or wrong, is it a sin to listen to Taylor Swift? There's really no debate about that. But there's no debate that the music influences you. Music is not just entertainment. Music is entertaining, but there is a philosophy behind it. It feeds your mind. It is shaping your life. Your life is molded by the music you play. And here's all I want to say to you tonight about this, that if you want to live for God and if you want to have a Christian home, then you must be rid of the music that contradicts that. It has too much power over you. So hear me. If you listen to the world's music, broad category, you are welcoming the influence of the world into your life. And maybe that's why you listen to it. But I'm talking to somebody tonight who doesn't want the world in your home. You want a Christian home because you got little children that you want to raise for God and you can defend your style of music. You can justify any kind of music you want to. But if you don't have holy music, you won't have a holy life. It is impossible for you to feed your soul with godless music and have a godly life. It's impossible. Impossible. It just depends on what do you want in your home. Now I told you this morning I say something about Taylor Swift. So I want to be true to my word. <laughs> Taylor Swift is the biggest music star in the world right now, as far as I know. Teenage girls idolize her. Her fans they call them Swifties. Can you imagine being called a Swiftie? <laughs> She's become one of the richest entertainers with her songs. And I honestly don't know much about her. I don't know her rise to fame or when she started. I only know she's one of the most popular pop singers in the world. I also know that Taylor Swift is one of the biggest proponents of the LGBTQ movement, the gay agenda. I know she is a fierce defender of the queer agenda. I, I do know that. And I do know that she stands on stage and dances in guy rates, in skimpy uniforms, and there's nothing holy about that at all. I do know that. I would not recognize a Taylor Swift song. If I heard it in Walmart, I wouldn't know that's Taylor Swift. I wouldn't recognize her voice. I wouldn't recognize her lyrics. But I do know from the research that I've done that almost all of her songs celebrates fornication, one night stands, cheating. That's the theme of her music. I know that some of her music videos are set in the bar with alcohol and smoking and drinking. Are you, are you getting the picture? And, and, and I know that you like it. And I know that it is entertaining. But you don't believe it is Christ honoring. Right? You don't believe that. 
you know that it is not Christ honoring. You, you do not believe that it is right for a Christian to listen to that. If you do, then you don't know what Christianity is. There is not one redeeming quality in the music that is produced like that. There, there is absolutely none. There is not one single holy thing. Somebody help me. There's not a single, if you look mad, I'm going to keep preaching. There is not a single holy thing about her music. There are a thousand things that's wrong with her dress, her demeanor, her lyrics, the sound of it all. There's nothing godly about it. And here's what I'm saying to you tonight, all right? I, and, and I hope it makes it to Twitter. I am saying to you tonight that you will not listen to Taylor Swift and have a spiritual life about you. You can argue about it. You can justify it. You can get mad. Whatever you might want to do. But you will be dead inside. There is no such thing as a disciple of Christ who listens to Taylor Swift. Because the influence of the music is too powerful for you. There is something to learn about music. But in this story, there is also something to learn about moods. Moods. You see, Saul was tormented by this evil spirit, and it manifests itself in bits of fits of depression and sadness and, and moodiness. And I'm not drawing a parallel to this unique situation, but many Christians live in that state of sadness, depression, fear, anxiety, anger, upset, moodiness. Moodiness. Psalm 42 and verse 5, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I will show yet praise him for the help of his countenance. There appears to be a large number of of Christians who have a cast down, a troubled, a disquieted soul. And I'm not trying to diagnose the condition of the troubled soul because we all get there at times. There's no one in here that has not doubted, that has not feared, that has not been agitated, that has not got mad, that has not been irritated. Every one of us have gotten there. Every emotion has ran through every one of us one of, the parts, one, one of the parts of living is we don't talk, talk much about our feelings. And feelings are not the deepest part of our being. We, we know that, but they are a constant part of our existence. And every person in here is born with a temperament, and you will have that temperament till the day that you die. There are some people that are, some people are an introvert and some people are extrovert. There are some people that are more prone to depression and, and to doubts and what have you. And when you got saved, your personality did not change. If you had depression before you got saved, you probably still battled depression after you got saved. Every one of us carries some burden in our spirit, and the burden generally has to do with our natural temperament, generally has to do with that. Feelings are not a bad part necessarily, but they are a part of us. They are a gift from God is what they are. We, we all express ourselves in emotions, and we engage our feelings in in worship and what have you, and, 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 and in expressing the, the joy of the Lord. When I sing, I want to feel the music. I, I want to get moved emotionally. Now, now I'm not trying to stir up the emotion, but, but I'm okay if, if my emotions get involved in worship. Christianity is not a dead religion. It's to a lot of people, but it's not to me. The gospel elicits a feeling in me is what it does. 
And while we, while, while, while we can allow influences in our life that generates certain feelings, you cannot command feelings at will. If I was to say, be happy, well, you can't be happy. There has to be something happy over. I got to tell a joke or something for you to be happy, right? So something has, has to generate that. You can't generate fear even though you can put yourself in fearful situations and then become fearful. But you are not your own master. You cannot will a feeling to come. And, and how, how I feel depends on so many factors. And, 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 and most of those factors I have absolutely no control over. There are some days that I wake up in a good mood. And there are some days I wake up in a bad mood. And I don't know why. I don't know why. The other night I woke up. And I, 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 I think I dream all night because my mind just races all night. And not last night, but the night before, I woke up Saturday morning and I was mad. I was mad over the rotten pears. I had been out picking pears and the pears were rotten on the tree. And I, I was, I mean, how is these pears rotten while they're still on the tree? And I was, I was irritated and I was agitated until I woke up. And there wasn't no pears there. I, I have, where'd that come from? I ain't had a pear in a year. All right. So, so I, I have no idea where that comes from. But some days I'm upbeat and I'm encouraged and sometimes I'm in a bad mood and I have no idea why. You ever been there? Or am I just preaching to myself? Our feelings are, they are vulnerable and they are variable. Sometimes I can be the most hateful person and sometimes I can be the sweetest person and sometimes I'm mad, and sometimes I'm glad, and sometimes I'm sad, and sometimes you are too. Right? One of the greatest dangers, though, is allowing ourselves to be controlled by how we feel. And oftentimes we, we, we excuse ourselves, well, this is my temperament, this is how I am. As if I am a slave to this is how I am. And there are some people almost kind of glory in the kind of man that they are. So you have to just accept who they are. But I want to tell you that there is nothing so unchristian as to allow your temperament to rule you. You may not be able to change your temperament, but you can control your temperament. Temperament is a gift from God. But because of the fall, it is tainted by sin and it has to be ruled. And the same thing is said about your feelings. Yeah. Here is a man that is absolutely out of control. And there are some people that are moody and they do nothing to control it. Nothing. And, and when you're in a bad mood, a troubled spirit, then everybody around you has to suffer because you have no control over your spirit. Am I making sense tonight? I, I, know I'm, I'm, I know I'm killing the service, I understand, but moods can come on you out of nowhere. I mean, just out of nowhere. But what do you do when the mood descends on you? You, you may get angry, but are you going to let that anger drive you the rest of the day, or are you going to confess it to God and get victory over it? Now, here is a man that doesn't have the Spirit of God on him. He is devoid. Of, so he is at the whim and will of the mood. That's not you and I. 
We have the Spirit of God. So what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? Quickly, quickly. Make sure that it is not a sinful cause for our feelings. If you're depressed, if you're unhappy, whatever it might be, the first thing I'd do is I'd make sure that there is not a spiritual cause behind that. It does no good to deal with the symptom if you do not address the root problem. If you have sin in your life, if you're pushing against the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you're going to have to deal with that first. If you're harboring some secret sin, if you're fighting against the Holy Spirit, there's not going to be any joy. You've got to deal with that. And the only cure may be to get on your face before God and confess your sins and repent and open your heart and ask God to help you. Listening to the voice of God when he puts his finger on your issue, get rid of that. You can't have any peace holding on to sin. So the first thing I would do is I'd make sure there's not a spiritual cause for my feelings. And then secondly, don't focus too much on your feelings. Don't make them the center of your life. They are not intended to be first place. They are not intended to rule my life. Do you know what should be the dominant force of my life? It is truth. It is, it is what I believe, not what I feel. We are rational beings first that operate on truth and then emotional beings. When you read the Bible, you don't read the Bible to get a feeling out of it. You read the Bible to get truth out of it. It isn't designed to work up some emotional stimulus. It is meant to impress something upon the mind. And when something is pressed upon the mind, then it plays itself out in the emotion. The truth, the truth is what gives you assurance. The truth gives you joy. The truth gives you peace. It gives you a settledness. So great feelings are not grounded on feelings. It is founded on faith. Feelings are never first. Don't be governed by how I feel. Be governed by how, what I believe. What I know and believe is the dominant force of my life. Here's the third thing I'm done. Learn to discipline yourself in reliance upon the Holy Spirit. Oh, that's hard, isn't it? We either resign ourselves to, well, that's just how I am. I'm a self-made man. This is just how God made me. Or we recognize that foul spirits, moodiness, all of that is a sin. And it must be confronted. And there's nothing magical. There's nothing, nothing mystical. There's nothing one, two, three steps about it. But when a sinful mood comes upon us, we choose to either control it or allow it to control us. And instead, instead of allowing yourself to speak to you, you speak to yourself. The mood will stay around as long as you allow it. You say, well, what do I do? You have the power of godly music. You have the power of prayer. You have the power of the Holy Spirit. You have the power of Scripture. Now, I'm going to tell you something tonight. I'm talking about just moods. I'm talking about bad. I'm talking about that bad ad. What I'm talking about. I'm going to tell you something. If you cannot go to God in prayer and rely on the Holy Spirit and quote some Scripture and sing some good music, you ain't got no hope. 
but that's the resources. How is it possible with those resources that we cannot conquer our moods and our spirits and our bad attitudes and our depression? Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual. Talk to yourself. Talk to yourself and tell yourself that that feeling is not going to dominate the way that my day goes. not going to happen today. And I don't always do that. Sometimes I do it way too late. You understand? Just like you. Sometimes I'm just as guilty as you are, and it is a sin is what it is. Saul is tormented in his mind. He's beset by these terrible outbursts of anger and jealousy and paranoia. And his situation is unique, but this is a problem that you and I face, and we are not to be dominated by it. So run to Christ. And run to the Holy Spirit. And run to prayer. Run to the Bible. Use the exercises, the resources that we have and exercise yourself in discipline and do not be dominated by the mood of the day. There's something to learn about moods in this passage. So I pray the Lord would use this troubled spirit to help us on a very practical level. As we bow our heads tonight for just a few minutes. Something to learn about the mind Something to learn about ministry. Something to learn about music. Something to learn about moods. Moods. Anna plays softly.